Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Tennis.com podcast. I am your host, Nina Pantic, and Irina Falcone is missing this episode, but we have an amazing guest, Donald Dell. Donald, welcome. Welcome. Fun to be here today. So for those that might not know, and I can't believe they wouldn't know who you are, I'm going to go through a little brief rundown of things that you've been doing in, for tennis. You went to college at Yale. You're one of Yale's greatest players ever. Law degree from UVA. You had a pro career. You reached number five in the world in 1961. Then you became a sports agent, one of the first sports agents in pro tennis, known as the father of sports marketing, alongside IMG's Mark McCormack. Not sure if you're going to argue with that fact, but we'll figure it out. Uh, you had Davis Cup career. You were on the captain for the winning teams, 1968-1969, founder of ProServe. Two books, Never Make the First Offer and Minding Other People's Business. Um, this is just a brief look at who our guest is, someone who, in my opinion, is an icon in tennis. So, Donald, I want to say that I'm excited. And one of the first things I want to talk about is this story you wrote for the Washington Post titled, Tennis Needs a Central Governing Body that Unites the Men's and Women's Tours. Given your incredible resume, you're more than qualified to sound off. So why does tennis need a merger and why right now? Well, I think two things. One, the reason I say now uh, Nina, is that everybody has a lot of time. There's no circuit. Nobody's playing. They're practicing. There's some pickup exhibitions on television. But everyone's got time to think about it. And uh, that's a good opportunity to review where we are. The WTA and the ATP, I helped found the ATP in 1972 with Jack Kramer. But it was a players-only union in those days. Today, uh, in 1989, it switched from a players only and became a partnership with the tournaments. So it's now called the ATP Tour Board, and the players have their own division of that partnership, and the tournaments have their own division. But the partnership, it, it, you know, has had pro problems working smoothly over the last, say, 20 years because tournaments basically, the, the, the interest is a partnership, but the interest of the the two groups are quite divergent. For example, players want fewer tournaments and more prize money and more money at bigger events. The tournaments, on the other hand, want, you know, better players and less prize money. So there's a lot of push and pull between the two. And uh, what's happened recently in the last six or eight years is the player, you've got to understand the players are three votes on the tour board and the tournaments are three votes and the chairman is the casting vote seven. But more and more over the last uh, two cycles of three year terms, uh, the players have voted in a block and the tournaments have voted in a block. So it ends up being a, a, a three, three standoff. And as a result, the chairman, uh, the last two chairmen have come in and cast, you know, the deciding vote several times. And because of that, once, once it was on prize money, another time it was on scheduling, and the players didn't like what, what the guy voted in, and both chairmen 
were removed, were, not, were terminated, and lost their jobs over a critical casting vote. So to my way of thinking, uh, the game is global. It's an individual sport. It's not a team sport. So you're playing the same way in Australia or India or Washington, D.C., all the same rules, all the same individual you know, problems and, and challenges as an individual player. So in my opinion, we should try to merge with the women. It would strengthen the sport. you got to understand where my goal is. My objective is how do you make tennis a bigger sport, both globally, but more importantly in America? And so if you start with that premise, if you look at it for a moment, tennis being global is number two or three in every European or Asian country on television. It's two or three. One is always soccer. In some places, foot, uh, basketball is growing like crazy. And tennis has always been number two or three on media. In America, on media, it's number 11 or 12, take your pick. And that's always troubled me and bothered me. So my objective is how do you build a bigger sport and a better sport? And television is always the key to that. If you could combine the women with the men in one group, you would have a much stronger organization. However, because the present uh, conflict where three, three votes lead to uh, a casting vote, which the chairman never wants to make because he fears for his job. I think you should have a commissioner's office, but it's the office and it ought to be three of them, uh, three different people, one from the uh, players that they select, one from the tournaments they select, and one from the four grand slams. So you have three different representatives of a combined group. It could be men or women in the office, but you have three different offices around the world, one in Asia, one in Europe, and one in America if you really wanna make it a, a world, uh, world global sport. Now that sounds very complicated and it may be very hard to do because you wanna pick objective people. Right now, right or wrong, everybody sitting on the ATP tour board has an inherent terrible conflict of interest. The tournaments are all there representing tournaments. They all have an interest to protect themselves. The players are representing a group of players on the council. They want to represent and do the best or they get fired by their council and they're not renewed. So how do you get an, a really impartial, objective group? And I think one way to do that is to merge the two and then pick your delegates very, very selectively. And they could be on for five-year terms with an option to terminate or, or renew. I'd like to build longevity into the program and I'd like to build longevity and objectivity. And if you had that, and you made it global rather than just really in America, what we're talking about, ATP is global. The WTA is more and more global. Uh, you'd have a bigger sport and you'd have a better, uh, more exciting sport with instant decisions being made and fair and objective decisions. And I think that would all lead to a better, broader telecast. Realistically, in- realistically though, what would the time frame be for something like this to come together as someone who's seen the founding of the ATP tour? When someone says, you know what, let's try and do a merger like this. Realistically, what would a time frame look like? At five well, years? Come down to the six people on there. If they really, if players together with tournaments really wanted to build a broader base of objectivity and a broader base of, of management and governance, they could do it. But it would certainly take a year or two because first step, you've got to get the men uh, to agree to have the women combined in one 
uniform, uh, integrated uh, body. And many of the players on the tour today, they don't want to say it publicly, but they fight, uh, they fight men and women co-ed tournaments, for example. We had a huge battle to get the women in Washington and the tennis channel, actually, and Ken Solomon, they were big leaders in getting that done. Ken is a big advocate, as you probably know, of women's tennis. And we started a tournament uh, in Washington with, with men for 40 years called the City Open. And then suddenly, when City became the new title sponsor of both, they said, we want a women's event. 51% of our clients are women. And uh, we'll come in and sponsor for a lot of money, a title sponsor for both events, if you ensure that we have a women's tournament. So about nine years ago, we added women. And uh, because of the calendar, we could only uh, add sort of a, a mediocre $250,000 women's event, not a 700 which we compete against one in, in the uh, San Francisco, uh, Stanford area that competes with us. And, but we found very quickly and, and, and really a little bit to my surprise, the women became a tremendous drawing card. And people in Washington who have been going to a men's only tournament for 40 years uh, were very adamant about keeping the women, growing the women, building the women. And of course, our biggest problem with that was the ATV men. They wanted priority on the courts, on scheduling, on prize money. And they said, look, we built the event up for 40 years. You know, they can't just come in and ride on our backs. And I said, well, let's integrate it in a positive way. So every year we chip away at the problem. But it's not something that the body of the ATP is saying, we want and need a women's event. They, they don't. And yet, if you look around the world, the most successful tournaments in all the of all tournament play professionally are integrated men and women events. It sounds like a merger would kind of help fight for the battle of equality that the women's tennis and women's sports have been fighting for. But I also want to ask you, what is the status of the 2020 City Open? I don't know how much you know or how much anyone knows. What's your take? I think it's probably about 2080 that the tournament will be held uh, this year because ironically, it is the first date that is still open. They haven't made a decision whether or not to cancel. They've canceled Atlanta, which is the week before, and they've canceled uh, Winston-Salem, which is the small tournament right before the U.S. Open. The U.S. Open is trying like crazy. It's probably 50-50. They're trying every way to find a way to continue. I believe that, that, that what will happen is they'll probably start in either Toronto or Cincinnati, if there's any men's play leading into uh, the U.S. Open. The problem with the U.S. Open or the whole American season, you got to bring all the players over from Europe. I mean, the men's players dominate in men's tennis. The women's players, the Americans are very strong in women's tennis, which is another reason why I think the WTA will get stronger and stronger. Because let's face it, in a global sport, you have to have an American market. if You want to be successful on television and in sponsorship and media. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. 
Hey everyone, you're listening to the Tennis.com podcast with special guest Donald Dell. He is touted as the first sports agent in pro tennis and the father of sports marketing with so many stories to share. Keep listening. But you've seen a lot of not easy things get done in the past. And I want to pivot a little bit here to your Davis Cup captain years. In the 1960s, you led the U.S. team to two titles. A certain player on that team was called Arthur Ashe. What is your first memory of your interaction with Arthur Ashe? When I retired in 66, I went to work for the law firm. And then in 68, uh, I had played Davis Cup as a player five times for America with different teams in America. I played in India. I played in Italy. I played uh, in Mexico. I played in Canada. I mean, I played four or five ties. And one of the captains when I played in 65 was uh, Bob Kelleher, who also was the president of the USTA. And when he became president in 68, uh, one of the first things he did was he asked me to be the Davis Cup captain, which was a shock because I was 29 years old. I was in a law firm and I, I was really the youngest captain they'd ever selected. So I went to Arthur Ashe and Charlie Pasquale. Charlie Pasquale, 67, was ranked one in America ahead of, Charlie, ahead of Arthur. And they were great friends. And I said, look, I'm happy doing what I'm doing. I'm now working. I left the law firm. In 68, I was now working with Sergeant Shriver at uh, the Office of Economic Opportunity. And, uh, and he was, you know, the chairman and executive director of it. And I love politics. I was very involved in 68. I said, I don't want to give it the job if you guys are not serious. But we hadn't won the Davis Cup in five times. We lost to bad teams, Peru, Ecuador. You know, we lost to a lot of bad teams. And I said, well, I'll do it. I'll take the job, but I got to quit my job. And I really don't want to do that unless you all are committed. And Charlie Passerell was a tremendous push in getting me to take the job. And, and Arthur, to a lesser extent, I didn't know Arthur as well. And uh, so between the two of them, they said, yes, they would commit. And we, we got a very good team. There were two young kids coming out of SC named Bobby Lutz and Stan Smith, who were like five or six years younger than Arthur and Charlie. They were, they were at that time 19 years old, and they were one heck of a double team. Stan Smith grew into being, you know, number one in the world uh, four years later in 72 uh, when he won Wimbledon. So we had a tremendous group of people and a tremendous group of players. Uh, and I got to know Arthur very, very well for, you know, traveling. I wasn't married. I was single so that I, I traveled with the team. And in 68, we had to win six matches around the world to get to the challenge round. Then we beat uh, the Australians down in uh, Adelaide, Australia. We beat Harry Hopman, who was the great Australian captain. This was his last match. He retired, and we beat him down there 4-1, and then came back. And in 69, it was the challenge round format, which is all the tournaments play, and the winner holds and waits till you get to the final and plays the, the best team in the world in the final, sort of like America's Cup. So in 69, we didn't have to play six. We had to wait. And we played uh, the Romanians with Tyriac and Nassasi in the finals in Cleveland. And they were a heck of a good team, but we were a good team too. And uh, we beat them 5 nothing. And at that time, the sport went open in 1968. Pro tennis was coming in because Wimbledon and the USTA demanded it. They were going to force the ITF, who had voted against it to go to open tennis. So in 68, those two were the only open events, Wimbledon and the U.S. Open. 
And then 69, other terms were, were coming together. And I was the captain of the team with the best six grade players on the squad. So I decided in uh, early the summer of 69, I was going to force the issue with the tournaments on the American circuit. And well, I said, well, we're not coming. And furthermore, we're not going to come to any of the summer tournaments without prize money. This was a big news issue. And Bob Keller, who was then the president of the USTA, who had appointed me Davis Cup captain, and he called me up. He said, Donald, when you were captain a year ago, we made a deal that you could run the team 100% without any interference by the USTA. And as the president, I would handle the politics internally with the association. You remember that? I said, yeah. He said, well, you're now threatening all the tournaments that you won't play with an America's best team unless they put a prize win. And I said, Bob, you led the charge for U.S. Open tennis to become professional. I don't want the American circuit to continue this joke of paying high paid expenses to amateur players. I wanted to be professional. And my, he said, well, what's your objective? I said, my objective is very simple. I want a tennis player when someone says, what do you do besides play tennis? Which is what they ask me every time. I want them to say, I'm a professional tennis player, just like I'm a professional golfer. That was my objective. And that's what we, and Ash and Pastorell, Bobby Lutz, Stan Smith, Clark Raymer, Jimmy Osborne, uh, we had uh, Cliff Ritchie. We had about eight players on the squad. I picked four for each match. They all agreed with me. They wanted money as well. That forced the American circuit to go to prize money events in 1969. And that really led by the U.S. Open. And the six summer tournaments all put up $25,000 the first year. Then the game changed when the U.S. Open moved to Flushing Meadows and it went to cement because then all these grass court tournaments kind of died out as, as people put on cement courts to be similar. Like Washington, we didn't have, we didn't have grass to start with. We had clay, dirty clay at a public park. We then turned and made, turned it into a cement uh, courts here now. And so the whole game went from really from grass to clay for a couple of years when the open was on clay and then it all moved to cement when they moved to Flushing Meadows and changed the surface. And that's history. That is history. That is quite a saga. But it sounds like you were making deals and negotiations in the 60s before you even got into becoming an agent. Is it because it was a natural role for you? Because you have a law degree you mentioned that you picked up while playing tennis, which is unheard of at this point. I can't imagine anyone getting a law degree while playing on tour. But anyway, you had the perfect, I guess, combination of skills. Is that what led you to start ProServe in 1970? Because you represented Arthur Ashe then as his agent, right? So you guys' relationship continued. No, no, what happened, what happened is it's, it's a true story and very ironic. In 1969, when the Davis Cup won, and, and we won it twice, there was a lot of pressure on me and to retire, really. And I, I wanted to get out because I wanted to get out when we were undefeated. Nobody had ever done that. And secondly, the game was going pro now with the U.S. Open and the prize money events in 69. And so I decided that I would retire in January of 70. And, and there were a couple of reasons for that. But one, I'd done it full time for two years, traveling everywhere with the players. Our per diem was $28 a day plus hotel and travel. So, you know, nobody's making any money. We we're all amateurs. 
in that sense, but the game was going pro. So we were, these people were turning pro. So in early uh, 70, January, I opened my own law office and I took Arthur to meet a guy named Mark McCormick, not once, but four times. And, and I really came and wanted him to meet Mark, to rep be represented by Mark and be managed by Mark. And it's an absolute true story after we had our fourth breakfast in New York at a restaurant. Mark always wanted to meet at eight o'clock, 7.30 in the morning, he was an early guy. Arthur was never particularly happy with that, but we always had breakfast with him. And so we left uh, the restaurant, we were driving back in a cab on the east side of New York. And Arthur said to me sort of angrily in the back seat of a cab, how many more times are you gonna do that? And I said, do what? And he said, you're always taking me to meet Mark McCormick. We've gone there now three or four times. And I said, well, I think he should represent you. I think he'd be the best for you. And, uh, you know, he's going to make you the most money. In 68, he signed John Claude Killey. He was running the Olympics marketing and television. He ran, he had three guys named Palmer, Player, and Nicholas in the world of golf. And he was head, of, head and shoulders about everybody. And so we were driving down this, he said, I never, I'll never forget. That. And he turns to me, he says, why don't you do it? And I said, why don't I do what? He said, why don't you manage me? Why don't you be my lawyer? I said, no, no, Arthur, I'm going back to Hogan and Hartson. And I'm going to be the next Clarence Darrow. I want to be a trial lawyer. I don't want to be a bad lawyer. He said, well, you know, Donald, if you think about it, if you'd do it, if you'd manage me, our Stan would join us. And you and I and Stan, we could, we could start a new business. I said, no, no, thanks for the great idea. You should go with McCormick. I went back to my old law firm, Hogan and Hartz, and asked the senior partner what he thought of the idea of managing athletes. To my absolute shock, he said, it's a great idea. His name was Lester Cohen, was running the firm in those days, in the 60s. Hogan and Hartson was one of the top four or five big city lawyers, uh, law, law companies in uh, Washington. And Lester turned to me and said, no, no, we'll give you the fifth floor of our building. We'll give you tax accountants. We'll give you secretaries. We'll give you research people. You can have the whole thing and get into sports, all sports. And I said, what would be the name of the division? And he said, Hogan and Hartson, sports division. I said, well, let me think about it. So I thought about it for three or four weeks. And for some unknown reason, I called him and said, I'm going to start a new thing called the Law Offices of Donald Dell. And my first two clients are going to be Arthur Ashe and Stan Smith, which they were, and which I was very lucky. And a lot of it was timing. The timing in early 70, you know, that year, the first year of 70, the game really went more and more professional. There were bigger prize money. And because I'd been the Davis Cup captain and winning for two years, I was really the first professional agent in tennis anywhere in the world. And I had a lot of, you know, I had a lot of uh, foreign clients. For, I had Jan Kodish, uh, you know, I, he won the French twice. And, and I had Jan Leslie. Jan Leslie was from Denmark. He went on to uh, be, the man, be the head of the uh, International Tennis Hall of Fame years later. So I was very lucky and, and really, uh, honestly, I mean, it, was, it was a lot of time. We had, it was wonderful, lucky timing. And then that uh, Donald Dell Law Office has grew into Dell Craig Ophentress and Benton, which was a bigger law firm in about mid-70s. And then we sort of morphed into ProServe uh, about 76, 78, because as a law firm in those days, under the canons of ethics, you couldn't, you couldn't recruit. You couldn't advertise, you couldn't solicit. And so we were really hand-strapped. And, and uh, 
of course, in the 70s, our biggest competitor was none other than Mark McCormick and IMG. And, you know, he had a head start. So he stayed in golf and I stayed in tennis for about five years. We kept in our separate lanes and then both of us crossed over. He signed labor, which was tremendous. And then I went into basketball in, in a big way and uh, managed Michael Jordan for 10 years and Patrick Ewing in Washington with pro service. So we really both expanded. And uh, at the height of, uh, in the early 80s, uh, we had 300 people around the world in 16 offices for ProServe. And I managed ProServe for 28 years as the president and CEO. Mark had 1,000 people in about 28 offices. So he was always about, oh, I'd say two times bigger than we were. And, uh, but those were fun days because everything was new. Everything was unquestioned. Everything was just sort of, you did it on instinct and, and uh, gut, and it was, it was a fun, growing, challenging time. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hi, everyone. You're listening to the Tennis.com podcast with incredible special guest Donald Dell. He's telling us about his relationships with the likes of Arthur Ashe, Bobby Kennedy, Stan Smith, Tennis Channel's Ken Solomon, and a lot more. Keep listening. I don't even know where to begin here. I can't believe you just casually mentioned Michael Jordan. Like, no big deal. Um, one more thing, one more thought on Ash. I read that he gave a speech once and he named you as one of the two people he would trust with his life along with his father. What would be your, I guess, your thoughts on him as a person, on Arthur Ash? Well, I've been very, very fortunate. You know, I managed athletes for probably 30 or 40 years. And of all the clients, we've had lots of different ones in different sports. I would say Arthur was by far the most unique. Uh, first of all, he was a speed reader, had a photographic memory, tremendous IQ, uh, soft-spoken, quiet, but very, very curious. And uh, the story you heard is a true one. In uh, about 1971, Arthur was giving a speech at the Democratic Women's Club in Washington. There are 400 women. And there were three, three men in the whole audience. There was Arthur, his father and me. And we went and sat at the head table. I had no idea that this was going to be, you know, four or 500 women and no other people. And uh, they introduced Arthur. And when he got up to speak, he said, uh, you know, he was sort of being funny. And he said to the audience, he said, I'm here with, with two people, my father and, uh, and Donald Dell, who uh, I would trust with my, both people I would trust with my life, meaning his father, of course, and meaning me. And I was sort of stunned by what he said, and the audience was. And it was amazing because two days later, a lady from the audience, which nobody knows, named uh, Mrs. Collis Jones, phoned me and said, could I get a copy of Arthur's speech? I was at that luncheon. I'd like to hear it again. She said, I have a son named Collis Jones, who's an All-American basketball player in Notre Dame, and I'd, I'd like to talk to you about managing it, but I want to listen to the speech first. Then she called Collis's coach, who was uh, 
Joe Gallagher at St. John's, St. John's High School here in Washington. It's a tremendous athletic school, football and basketball. And Joe knew me from playing basketball at Landon. He said, no, Donald's this, Donald's that. And the next thing I knew, my first client in basketball was Collis Jones. And he was All-American at Notre Dame for two years. He was drafted number one in the NBA by um, uh, Milwaukee, who had just won the championship that year with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who was in Milwaukee before he went to the NBA in L.A. So suddenly, because of Arthur and that speech, I got very involved in, in basketball in the NBA. And uh, I did that for the next 20 years. But it was originally because of that speech that Arthur did. And it's common. It's all about who you know. It sounds like the relationships are more important than anything else. At least that's what I've come to understand here. Uh, since we've talked about I'd Arthur, like to go talk ahead. for a second about Arthur because he, he was probably. And people always say to me, "Who is your favorite athlete?" And Stan Smith and I have been together for forty-seven years. Both Arthur and Stan were on a handshake. We had a letter agreement for one year when we started in nineteen seventy. They both had the identical same two-page letter agreement. They both expired in 71. And Arthur and I went on for 23 years on a handshake. And Stan and I are together 47 years later on a handshake. And uh, that tells you a lot about the character of those two people. But I I would say about Arthur, he was one of the strongest, quietest uh, characters that you would ever meet. And uh, he had very strong beliefs. And the reason for that was his father. His father... um, was quite a guy, a phenomenal uh, man in Richmond. He was a, a retired policeman, and he also worked in a place called Bird Park. And he was sort of the, the guy who took care of Bird Park. And it was a public park in Richmond, Virginia. But Arthur was not allowed to play tournaments in Bird Park because he was black. So when I became Davis Cup captain in 68, the very first thing I did, our first match was against the British West Indies, an all-black team. And guess where I scheduled the match? Bird Park, Richmond, Virginia. <laughs> that wasn't by accident. And the place went absolutely berserk to cheer, you know, Arthur and the crowds were tremendous. The team was not, the British West Indies was not a good team. They had a couple of good players, but they weren't, they weren't going to beat us. And uh, that sort of started to open up uh, a segregated park, which Arthur had lived in and grown up in. It's remarkable that about 50 years later, these issues with, you know, not segregation, but racial inequality is still is still present here, especially in America. What's your take on players that are trying to stand up and use their platform and kind of try and force change in this climate? Is it is there any delicacy with, you know, like I know the players have contracts and obligations and things they can and can't do. What's your take on having players that want to stand up for for things like fighting for equal rights? Well, I think it's amazing because sport in general, all sport, has become so, so popular, particularly in the American culture. Look at with no live sports now. Everybody's going crazy. ESPN's doing everything to fill content. The Last Dance by Jordan, which was 10 episodes, if you can imagine. And it had the greatest audience viewing because everybody's sort of starving for live sports. So I think... That proves the point that individual sportsmen have a tremendous following now. And together, collectively, I think LeBron's been very good at this and others, that you can organize and push change. I mean, it's really interesting. Take uh, Kaepernick in the NFL. He he dropped to a knee four years ago. 
I don't care what anyone says. There was an unwritten rule that nobody's going to hire them of the owners of the NFL. Well, that's all just changed last week with Goodell, the commissioner, coming on so strongly. So he's advocating to black players in NFL football to lead the way for change. For example, one of his quotes was, without back, and he said this quote, without black players, there would be no NFL. Well, it's very interesting. You haven't heard any NFL owners stand up and speak. It's, you assume, you assume that Goodell is speaking for the individual owners, and I hope he is, but you're gonna find out in about a month's time if anybody hires Kaepernick, because he was a hell of a talent. And there's no question that as a, a backup quarterback, he'd be better than half of the backups in the NFL today, in my opinion. It's just an amateur out, outside thought. So we'll see what happens. But to answer your specific questions, I think athletes, if they were organized, can be the biggest element of change of anybody because they have a, they have a, a platform they can stand up and talk every day and people aren't covering you know and, and and they're more genuine than politicians today who are a mess they never give you an honest answer about even who their name is or whether they're in the republican party or what they are i mean it's nonsense so the athletes by default because the politicians have been pathetic in in stepping up the athletes have grown in stature and i think they could be tremendous in leading change Absolutely. I absolutely agree. I think, uh, I think it's, it's an interesting time to say the very least and how things might develop from things, you know, we'd start off with WJTP merger to things like fighting for equality. There's a lot of change possible coming up. I have one last question. It's a little bit of a wild card. I want to know, you know, if people who do not know this, that you worked with Rob Kennedy in uh, late 1960, I think 1968 to be precise. What was Rob Kennedy like? I know that um, it was only a brief time. First and foremost, no one ever called him Rob. It was Robert Kennedy. Robert. It tells you that you're of a different generation. It was Robert Kennedy. Some people called him Bob, but never Rob. But now I was very fortunate in 66, 67 when I was working at Hogan and Hartson. And again, I lived right across in Georgetown in an apartment. I was single. And uh, I, I went over several times, met the Kennedy somehow, somewhere, and started playing tennis with him on Saturdays and Sundays. And actually really got involved trying to teach Bobby how to hit a backhand and they loved tennis. They had their own court and they would always invite people every Saturday and Sunday. They would have lots of people at their home out there at Hickory Hill, just across the river in Virginia. And so I spent probably a year going out there quite a lot, to see them, got to know them as a family. And um, then Bobby decided suddenly in 68 to run for uh, the presidency in 66, uh, he had run for the U.S. Senate. He, he had won the Senate, in, I think, 64, 65. And he was 66 was an off year election. And one of his very strongest friends and greatest lieutenants was a fellow named John Nolan, who was a lawyer in Washington, number one graduate from Annapolis, tremendously strong person. He would have been attorney general, in my judgment, if Bobby had won. And uh, John in 66 asked me to come on and make some uh, stops for Bobby. So I advanced for Bobby in 66 when he was running an off-year election. So in 68, when he announced for the candidacy of presidency on March 17, 1968, on March 18th, I was in Los Angeles with John Nolan setting up the, the California delegation for Kennedy the next day. 
So I hit the deck running for Bobby because I knew his family so well. And he was, you know, we were, I had to resign from working with Sarge at OEO and the Peace Corps. And Lyndon Johnson was the president, was still going to run. And uh, so I was in California and suddenly they called me back to Washington and asked me if I would oversee running five states as the lead advance. And my five states were uh, Arizona, uh, West Virginia, California, Oregon, and the District of Columbia. So I was what was called the lead advance, which meant I had 30 or 40 people reporting to me in each state. And I would move from constantly from state to state in 1968. Uh, and also the only problem with that was also the Davis Cup captain in 68. So I was switching jobs back and forth, but they were really exciting, fun times. And, and certainly uh, I got to know Bobby and I had a I had a big advantage because I could walk into any hotel and go up and see him any time of night. And, uh, you know, in politics, it's all about access and people used to, you know, this thing that they said with Bill Clinton, you know, friends of Bill Clinton, Bobby was a forerunner. The Kennedy family has always been like that. They've always had close people very involved in their political campaigns and literally, uh, Honestly and, and sincerely, the, the most exciting moment probably my entire life was not playing at Wimbledon seven times. It may not have even been winning the Davis Cup twice. We had Bobby come into Arizona and we put him in Goldwater's Plaza. Barry Goldwater had a big plaza in, uh, in Phoenix. And we put in 28,000 people to see Kennedy on a Saturday. And we were doing that very deliberately because we wanted to be in, in that particular plaza. I was in charge of the stop. And the next day, Bobby phoned me in the morning. said, would you come over and have play tennis with me at Scottsdale? Fly back with us on the plane. I said, sure. So I went and we jumped on the plane. We flew into New York, LaGuardia. It was March 31st, 1968. We had been in the campaign for two weeks. And Melinda Johnson was president and we were fighting him everywhere plane landed and I was in the front sitting next to Ethel and she hated to fly because two of her brothers had been killed on plane crashes. So she was a nervous wreck. The guy burst through the front door and I'm blocking the owl. Bobby's about three feet from me sitting there reading some papers. And the guy says, I got to see the Senator. I got to so wait, wait, just relax. And uh, he's a tall guy, about six, four ball. And, he's, and he starts perspiring. Bobby's only about three feet from us. So after about a minute and a half, two minutes, the guy really said, damn it. He said, do you know who I am? I said, no. He said, I'm the state chairman in New York. Lyndon Johnson has just withdrawn from being president. It's not going to run again in a second campaign. I got 20,000 people out in the parking lot that want to hear from Senator Kennedy. Now will you let me through? Now, he said all that, screaming it so Bobby would hear him. So I'm blocking the aisle. So I turned to face Bobby. and There's nobody between me and him. And he's looking at some papers and he looks up at me with those steel blue eyes and he smiles and he sort of nods. And in that instant, with all this happening, I said to myself, we just elected the president of the United States. And it was easily the most exciting moment in my life because when Lyndon got out, we were going to fill that void pretty quickly. So I let, and Bobby nodded and I let the man go by and talk to him. Now I'll never forget Ethel saying to me as we were walking through the park, she said, God, she said, now everybody will be back from, from Jack's staff. He said, you know, Kenny O'Donnell, uh, all the guys from Boston, Massachusetts, the Irish mafia. She said, you know, 
they've been sitting on the fence for two weeks because they didn't want to fight a president in Johnson. Now with him out, they'll be back. And then she looked up at me and said, but we're going to always remember the people have been with us for the first two weeks, not the rest of the campaign. And that's the way the Kennedys were extremely loyal, extremely outspoken. And it was really the most thrilling moment of my life when I looked and saw Bobby knowing Johnson was out of the race. And I really, really thought that we would elect a president. And there's no doubt in my mind, if he had lived, we would have beaten easily Herbert Humphrey in the primary and we would have to face Nixon. And I just always believe that between Nixon and Bobby Kennedy, the volumes of people voting would have carried Kennedy, but who knows? Uh, that's a remarkable story. I'm I'm honored that you've shared so much with us on this episode of the podcast. I can't believe all the stuff that we've got into. I'm glad I got to sneak in uh, Bobby Kennedy in there at the very end. I really, really, really appreciate your time. I think we've taken up enough of it. So this has been the uh, Tennis.com podcast with Donald Dell. It's been a fun time. Thank you, Nina. Thank you. From the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, this has been the Tennis.com Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to stay caught up. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and every major listening app, as well as Tennis.com slash podcasts. You can also see the videos of our episodes on Tennis Channel's YouTube page and Tennis.com's Facebook page. We're your hosts, Nina Pantic and Irina Falcone. We'd like to thank our team, editor and audio designer and video editor, Christina Koseva, producers Alexa March and Sean O'Malley, and executive producers Shelby Coleman, Kyle Einhorn, and Andy Chu.